scripture reading this morning is um, from the Gospel according to Matthew on page 962 in your pew Bibles where we'll read first from Matthew chapter 5 verse uh, 27 through verse 30. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. You can turn over to Matthew chapter 19, where we'll uh, read also from verses 1 through 12. It says, now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. And we read those two passages in connection with Lord's Day 41 of our Heidelberg Catechism, which has been going through the Ten Commandments. We come this morning to commandment number seven where we read questions 108 and 109 responsively on page 892 in the back of your hymnal, Lord's Day 41, starting with question 108. What is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? That God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Question 109, does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. This is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. 
congregation as we think about the seventh commandment and what the Bible uh, says about sexuality, there is uh, sometimes this idea that Jesus had very little to say about issues of sexuality and that being a preacher of love, he wouldn't forbid anything that appears to be an expression of love. Uh, my Jesus is a God of love, people say. Or maybe you've, you've driven by churches with signs that say things like, our church is inclusive, just like Jesus. The idea being that either Jesus had little to say about these issues of our day, or that he explicitly endorsed them. And so what does Jesus say about sexuality? And what does Jesus say about the, the way that we use our bodies, the thoughts that we think, or the nature of marriage itself? As we try to answer that question, I want to take just one of the four Gospels and try to survey all that Jesus says about marriage and sexuality to show, first of all, um, that it's, it's not true that Jesus didn't have anything to say about these issues. And second, that these issues are actually tied to the very gospel that Christ proclaimed. I'm going to answer three questions this morning. First, uh, what Jesus says about marriage and sexuality in Matthew's gospel. Second, why he says it. And then third, whether he has any saving word to speak to those who were caught in these sins that he condemns. Um, first, what Jesus says about sexuality. Again, our, our survey of this in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount where uh, Jesus says, as we just read a moment ago, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has committed adultery already in his heart. And therefore, Jesus says, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out, for it's better to lose one of your members than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now, rather than having little to say about this subject, Jesus actually gets to the very heart of the matter. As question 109 says, he forbids not only such scandalous sins as adultery, but all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone toward them. And he, he teaches that the seventh commandment is a matter of the heart, and that God cares even about what goes on inside our minds. Reinforcing what Job said in Job 31, that we must not look at another lustfully. But we are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. As I'll say in Matthew 15, he, he wants us not to be defiled by, by that which proceeds from the heart. The evil desires and sexual immorality of which he speaks there. Um, Jesus affirms that, that God is even concerned with, with what goes on inside of us that no one else can see, for he is the God of Matthew chapter 6 who, who sees even what is done in secret from whom nothing is hid. And as Jesus makes clear in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he wants us to be those who not only practice righteousness outwardly, but who love God from the heart, even when no one else is watching. And so question 109 rightly gets at, at even the thoughts and desires that live within us. 
Matthew 5, 8, God wants us to be pure in heart. And and so rather than having little to say about these matters of of sexuality, Jesus actually has more to say than, than the religious teachers of his day. He gets down to the level of the heart. And the same is true with the the issue of of divorce, again, where where Jesus has considerably more to say than than those other teachers of his day. We're in Matthew chapter 19, as Jesus is asked that question of whether a man may divorce his wife for any reason, as many were doing in his day, his response to that question points us back to creation where God made man and woman to be one flesh and, and Jesus says what God has therefore joined together, let no man separate. And he says that any man who divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And Jesus commands faithfulness to one's spouse, condemning not only the unchaste looks and and thoughts and desires of Matthew chapter 5, but also the unlawful divorce of Matthew chapter 19 that was so prevalent in his day. Jesus had no problem condemning the sins of the seventh commandment that the culture of his day transgressed. He condemned unlawful divorce and, and breaking marriage vows. He condemns sexual immorality and the grounds that he gives in verse 9, teaching that God's plan from the beginning is one man and one woman becoming one flesh. Emphasis on on one man and one woman. As Jesus' statement about God's plan from the beginning also speaks to the the question of of marriage or, or sexual relationships between one man and one man or one woman and one woman. Um, Jesus clearly affirms that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, let a man leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. God's plan for marriage from creation is a differentiated male and female union joined together by God where the, the two who are different become one. Of which he says, let no man separate. Jesus, you see, has a very high view of marriage. Very high view of marriage that that condemns unlawful divorce. It it condemns sexual immorality and adultery, same-sex relationships. As we read in Lord's Day 41, that that God condemns all unchastity, whether in or outside the holy state of marriage, which, which includes all of these violations, even down to the thoughts and desires of the heart. The sexual ethic of the kingdom of the son of David who Matthew proclaims is not one of bumper sticker slogans like love is love or our kingdom is inclusive but one of radical fidelity to God in body and in soul whether in or outside the holy state of marriage. He condemns all unchastity and we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly. That, in basic summary, is what Jesus says about sexuality in Matthew's gospel. The reason why he says it, the reason why this matters, is because of what marriage and sexuality represent in Matthew's gospel. That's what we'll look at next as as we tie this theme of of sexual fidelity to a, a larger theme in Matthew's gospel of the meaning of marriage and sexuality itself. We 
I'm turned now from what Jesus says to why he says it. We didn't read this, but I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 9. Very important passage in Matthew's gospel where Jesus is um, he's still at the beginning of his ministry. He's, he's calling his disciples and he calls Matthew in uh, chapter 9, verse 9, as one of his disciples. And then he attends a feast that's held in Matthew's house. I think it's Luke who, who tells us that Matthew is the very one who, who hosts this great feast. And in verse 14, in the midst of the feasting, it says that some of John's disciples, they, they come in and ask, why are you, why are you feasting when, when we, the, the disciples of John, and, and even the Pharisees over there are, are fasting? Are you feasting and not fasting? And Jesus gives a very interesting answer. He says in, in verse 15, can the wedding guests mourn while the bridegroom is with them? The days will indeed come where the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast, but, but not now. Now is the time for feasting. Um, Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom of the feast, the, the bridegroom of the banquet. And this is the beginning of, of a theme throughout Matthew's gospel that will continue, especially towards the end of Christ's ministry, where in several of the parables that, that Jesus gives, he refers to himself as the bridegroom of the wedding. You might recall some of this from a few years ago when we looked through Matthew's gospel, but you can turn to Matthew 22. You see this again where... Jesus has just, at the end of Matthew 21, told this parable of, of the tenants, the vineyard owner who sends the, the um, servants to receive that which is rightfully his, and they beat them up and kill them. Eventually, he sends his own son, who they also kill. The Pharisees understand that that son in, in that parable is, is, is Jesus, that he's the son of, of the, the owner of the vineyard. Then in Matthew 22, following just after that, Jesus gives sort of the second part of this pair of, of parables, and, and he says in verse 2 that the kingdom of heaven can also be compared to a king who had a wedding feast for his son. Again, that the son is Jesus, just like in the parable before this, where, where the son of the vineyard owner is, is Christ and is understood to be Christ. So in Matthew 22, um, he is the, the son of the king. And it says that the king sent out all of his servants to, to invite everyone to, to the, this wedding feast, but that those invited who, who represent um, unbelieving Israel, they, they did not want to come. Well, the Gentiles from the highways and byways did. And so Jesus says in verse 10 that the wedding feast was, was filled with, with those guests, the, the unlikely guests, the, the Gentiles. But what's interesting about this parable is that Jesus chooses to compare his kingdom to, to the wedding of a king's son, where once again, he is the bridegroom. And then later in that same chapter, Jesus is asked um, uh, by the, the Sadducees who don't believe in, in the resurrection, they're trying to trap him with this, this clever question about a woman whose husband dies, and then she remarries the brother, and he dies, and so on. And, and so there's seven uh, men who were married to her, and, and they say, so in, in the resurrection, um, whose, whose wife is she? And Jesus says in verses 29 and 30, you, you don't understand but in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are they given in marriage. And the reason why is because of what Jesus said at the beginning of the chapter. 
that the kingdom, which, which will then be consummated, is like a wedding where he is the bridegroom and marriage will then give way to that to which it's always pointed. The union of Christ and his people, of which Jesus speaks again in Matthew 25, where he compares his coming at the end of the age to a bridegroom's arrival to receive his bride. Matthew 25, verse 1. Again, he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who who took their lamps and they went out to meet the bridegroom. This is interesting, actually. I think this is... um, sounds a lot like what's described in Song of Songs chapter 3, where Solomon, the son of David, arrives on his wedding day to, to receive a bride. These ten virgins, perhaps um, reminding us of those, those uh, daughters of Zion throughout the, the Song of Songs. Even actually in Matthew 26, there's going to be another uh, way in which, which Matthew picks up on the Song of Songs imagery from chapter 1 as Mary anoints the king with spikenard while he sits at his table and, and the aroma of that spikenard fills the room. Over and over, we see this this bridegroom imagery. Over and over, Jesus compares the kingdom of heaven to a wedding, and he identifies himself as the bridegroom of that wedding. What he's doing is is he's exalting the, the significance of marriage, the high privilege of picturing the gospel. He's saying, I'm the one that the very institution of marriage points to that God created this union from the beginning between one man and one woman to become one flesh. He, he created this all the way back in Eden to teach you about union with me. Which is why Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 quotes that same line that Jesus does about one man and one woman becoming one flesh and says this mystery is profound and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Paul understood what Jesus was saying that the union between a husband and a a wife is a picture, it is a a little parable of the gospel mystery of union with Christ. That's why Jesus says what he does about marriage and sexuality throughout the gospel. His teaching about marriage is tied to the meaning of marriage. His teaching uh, about marriage is grounded in what marriage represents. And so now... With that in mind, think about all of those different forms of sexuality that are prohibited by Christ's teaching. The problem with that unlawful divorce that Jesus condemns in Matthew 19 is that it fails to picture the unbreakable bond between Christ and his bride. The problem with the sexual immorality that that he mentions in that same passage as as that which breaks this bond is that it fails to picture the exclusivity and faithfulness of this union. The problem with homosexuality is that it it fails to picture the diversity of this union where where God and, and man are two differentiated beings who are united together as one. But a man and a man or a woman and a woman fails to reflect the, the differentiated union between God and humanity, between Christ and his bride. Now, the problem with pornography and the lust that Christ condemns in Matthew chapter 5 is that it, it fails to reflect the, the transcendence of this union where it takes something deeply sacred and, and presents it in a form that degrades it. Carl Truman says it repudiates any notion that the union of a man and a woman has significance beyond the act itself. It tramples the holy. 
All of these forms of sexual sin are what they are because they trample the holy and fail to reflect the beauty of the gospel of which marriage and sexual union are meant to be a picture. You could go on and on. The problem with intimacy outside of marriage is that it's trying to enjoy what is meant to be an expression of covenant vows without the vows themselves. And therefore, without the safety that those vows provide. Christopher Ashe says it this way. He says, sex outside of marriage is, is always under law. Always seeking to prove, always striving to do well enough to keep the other in the relationship. But, but in marriage, it's under grace. With nothing to prove because of the safety of those covenant vows, the way that God meant it to be. And do you see how all of these different things that Christ forbids... are forbidden and are what they are because they they so badly distort the gospel message that marriage is meant to picture. The reason why our sexuality matters is because of what it was designed by God to proclaim. I was reading this week from uh, Ray Ortland in his his commentary on Proverbs, that section on uh, Proverbs 5 and Proverbs 6. He he says, "A, a man and woman in love committing themselves with lifelong vows of faithfulness, uniting together sexually and living life together till death do us part. All of this points to the mega romance of Christ and the church in love forever. A man and a woman in love displays the ultimate story of the Son of God coming down to win to his heart with great suffering a bride. God created the universe for the purpose of telling that story. More than any other reason, that is why our sexuality matters, whether married or single. What we are is about the gospel. That's why we need to learn gospel sexuality. Our bodies tell God's story. Marriage proclaims the gospel, and any distortion of it is a false gospel. That's why the bridegroom taught the sexual ethic that he did. That's why we confess what we do in Lord's Day 41, because God created the universe for the purpose of telling the story that Matthew's gospel proclaims of God wedding a people to his son. That's why we seek to live decent and chaste lives, whether in or outside the holy state of marriage. That's, that's why we seek to keep our, our temples, both body and soul, clean and holy. Because marriage and sexuality are not just about marriage and sexuality, but the way that, that we understand and express our sexuality, as one writer said, points to our deepest held convictions about who we are, who God is, who, who Jesus is, what the church is or should be, the meaning of love, the ordering of society, and the mystery of the universe. The seventh commandment concerns the gospel. That's why Jesus said what he said about sexual ethics in the kingdom of God. Because he wants you to join with him in proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom by the way you use your body. For those married, in faithfulness to your spouse, in loving, joyous union, as you picture for those around you the shape of the gospel. And for those not married, of whom he speaks in Matthew 19, as you live content in that state and picture the sufficiency of the gospel. That the bridegroom is enough, and so you don't need to seek the the affection and satisfaction of others in ways that God has not permitted. 
We see both how the gospel informs our sexual ethic and then also how our sexual ethic proclaims the gospel. The gospel also has something to say to those who have fallen short of that sexual ethic. That's what I want to spend the rest of our time on. We see very clearly in Matthew's gospel the significance of the institution of marriage. We see also that the ways that that informs our understanding of what is right and and what is wrong. But Jesus doesn't stop there, simply leaving us with a, a high standard that we must meet. But he also comes to meet us in the midst of our failure. I want to just point out to you one other related theme in Matthew's gospel. We looked already at Matthew chapter 9. And if you would turn back there, there's something very interesting about that passage where Jesus first calls himself the bridegroom. It's in the context, verse 10, of Jesus reclining at table with many tax collectors and sinners. Some translations like the NIV actually put sinners in quotation marks because this was, was a term in first century Judaism that referred particularly to, to, to um, very uh, noteworthy or grievous sinners, often to sexual sinners. In fact, Jesus will, will speak specifically in Matthew 21 of, of um, prostitutes and say that they go into the kingdom before the people of Israel who, who reject him. And here in Matthew chapter 9, in that very first place in Matthew's gospel where Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom, it's, it's in the context of him feasting with these notorious sinners. Which is good news then for all of us who have fallen short of the high standard that Christ calls us to in the seventh commandment, both in body and soul, both in conduct and even in our hearts and thought life. The fact that Jesus, the bridegroom who comes to feast, also comes to to feast with with sinners is good news because it means that it's not then game over for those who have sinned. But but in Matthew 9, it's sinners who Christ comes to save. He says that explicitly. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Which Matthew has actually already hinted at in the very beginning of his gospel where he, he began with that genealogy in Matthew chapter 1. Genealogy that had one very distinct feature, unlike any other first century genealogies, that that Matthew goes out of his way to include four women. And the women that he specifically chooses to to include, several of them have somewhat checkered pasts. He includes Rahab, the prostitute. He includes Tamar, the the one who dressed as a cult prostitute to have a child by her father-in-law Judah. And he includes Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah, who bore Solomon by King David. Matthew includes each of these in Christ's family tree as if to say, these are the kinds of people from whom and for whom Christ came. One church father said, Christ therefore took upon himself a blood relationship to that nature which fornicated in order to purify it. He took on that very nature that was sick in order to heal it. He took on that nature which fell in order to lift it up. That's what Christ does in the incarnation. That's what he does in his earthly ministry, drawing near to sinners to feast with them. Even drawing near to them as the bridegroom who uniting himself to sinners who turn to him in faith takes their sin upon himself as the two become one. Martin Luther puts it this way. He he says, by the wedding ring, 
of faith. Christ shares in the sin, death, and pains of hell, which are his brides. As a matter of fact, he makes them his own, and he acts as if they were his own, as if he himself had sent. And suffered, died, and descended into hell for them so that the believing soul might be free in Christ its bridegroom from all sins, secure against death and hell, and endowed with the, inter- the eternal righteousness of Christ its bridegroom. Luther says, who can fully appreciate what this royal marriage means? Who can understand the the riches of the glory of this grace where here this rich and divine bridegroom condescends from heaven to marry a poor wicked harlot and redeem her from all evil and adorn her with his goodness. Her sins cannot destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him and she has that righteousness in Christ her husband of which she may boast of as her own saying, if I have sinned, yet Christ, in whom I believe, has not sinned. And what's his is mine. As the bride says in the Song of Songs, my beloved is mine and I am his. This is the gospel, that Christ came from from heaven to, to go to the wrong side of town, as it were, to marry a harlot and make her beautiful. As the final pages of the Bible end, dressed in white without any spot or wrinkle. And so as you hear the gospel of of Christ proclaimed in the book of Matthew and how it demands a, a sexual ethic that you have not met, do not despair. But remember the bridegroom who feasts with sinners, who came himself from a line of sinners to save sinners in his death on the cross and trust in the merit of his death, trust in the cleansing power of his blood. But then as Jesus says elsewhere to a woman caught in sexual sin, go and sin no more. Don't continue in your unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, but compelled by the love of the bridegroom, seek to walk in faithfulness, seek to walk in purity, finding in him the the satisfaction that you seek in all of those illicit desires. There are counterfeits. And they cannot provide the satisfaction that only he can. And so trusting and delighting in him, the true bridegroom, and being satisfied with the living water that flows from him, don't seek that dead water and drink from the the broken cisterns of sexual sin that cannot satisfy. But drink of his love that is better than wine, and out of that satisfaction seek to serve him, whether in or outside the holy state of marriage, keeping both body and soul clean and holy in service of the bridegroom and of his gospel. Amen. Father in heaven, pray that you would help us by your spirit to be so satisfied in the love of Christ that we do not seek satisfaction in that which he has forbidden, but help us to proclaim the gospel of Christ, our faithful bridegroom, with our bodies. Forgive us for the ways in which we have failed in doing this, both in heart and conduct. And now compel us by the love of Christ to serve you, whether in or outside the holy state of marriage, in body and soul, so that this same gospel by which we've been saved might be declared in the way that we live, showing in our marriages the shape of the gospel 
and in our singleness, the sufficiency of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.